Father, it is so good to sing about your resurrection life. We're reminded of the words of your dear son, your beloved son, who speaks to us even now by telling us that he is the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in him, even though he dies, yet he shall live. And whoever believes in him will never die. God, we are so thankful, so confident in Christ's word that we sing and proclaim that we too, because of Christ, because of his resurrection life, will never die. God, would you give us assurance, a sweet, strong assurance this morning that the words of Christ ring true home to our own hearts this morning. Would you reassure your people in the Ukraine, our brothers and sisters, that they too share in this resurrection life, that the grave will not be the final word, that death does not have the victory, that sting has been removed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they can continue to depend upon you, even though, God, they walk in the valley of the shadow of death. Please, God, be their good shepherd. God, would your rod and your staff comfort them and help them, Lord, to fear no evil. Lord, we are so thankful for what we share together with those brothers and sisters. As they suffer, we suffer with them. And we want to labor, God, to lift them up before you and ask that you would be a good and gracious and great God and King to them today. God, would you cause brothers and sisters in Russia who are more united to their brothers and sisters in the Ukraine and more united to their brothers and sisters here in this room than they are with their alliances and allegiances politically or nationally, God, cause us around the world to intercede on these brothers and sisters' behalves so that, Lord, your gospel might sound forth from that place, that in the midst of suffering and pain and sorrow that's real, the resurrection life of Christ might speed ahead in that country, in that region, and in that great massive place of need. God caused there in the ruins to be a great awakening. And Lord, we pray that for us here now too. Seems to me that we're in a place of green pastures. You've led us beside still waters. We are at ease here in this place in this region, in Sacramento and in San Francisco. And so, Lord, I just ask that you, as our good shepherd, would guide us to your truth now. God, would you cause your spirit to convict us of sin and to comfort us in our affliction so that we might see Christ exalted among us, so that our hearts might be drawn out in affection toward him, so that our lives might be conformed into the image of your dear son more and more and more. God, please help that to happen as your word is opened even now and use a worthless servant like me to serve your people the word that they need that would feed their souls, strengthen them spiritually, and send them on their way with their mission to make much of Christ in their world. God, we are depending on your spirit to do this work. Would your spirit 
be so active among us and within us. We are so grateful for his indwelling presence, so grateful that he is a seal of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. But until then, God, please help your spirit to be very active among us now. We need you, Lord. We need you. And we are depending upon you, all of us, myself included, as your holy word is opened. Our text today is from Exodus 34. You can take your seat. Exodus 34. Or are you supposed to stay standing while we read? <laughs> what does Scott do? Did I just commit some kind of mortal sin? Okay, Revoco. It's my bad. Yeah. Look, here's my point. My, my goal today before we read is just to keep Scott, your beloved pastor, fresh off the plane from Uganda, awake. So if I can keep him awake, man, mission accomplished, okay? So stand down, sit up, sit up, sit down, whatever you need to do to keep him awake. Scott's back, by the way. Did you know that? Yeah. So grateful for our partnership. I had Scott come down and preach for us when I was away. And uh, we had a gal come to Christ as a result of your preaching, brother. And we baptized her just last Sunday. So praise the Lord for that. And we just, I just caught up with a brother who said that he got saved right before he left our church and came up here. So we'll keep swapping people as long as we can keep saving people, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. Can I read now? I don't care what you're doing. Stand up, sit down, whatever. Let's read from God's word. <laughs> Exodus 34, verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And took in his hand two tablets of stone. Verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, oh Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it's a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. You can take your seat. Seemed appropriate to open God's word for you to uphold the namesake of this church, doxa, which in Greek is translated glory. The Hebrew term is kavod, it's what you see descending on the cloud in verse five. The title of the message is the glory of God, the foundation for everything in your life. And here's my question to open to you this morning. What do you think of when you think of God? I don't know if you're here for the first time. I don't know if you've been here for the 1,000th time, it doesn't matter. What do you think about when you think of God? What comes into your mind? It's a question that A.W. Tozer asks in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, it's up on the screen. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about you. 
Were we able to extract a complete answer to that question from any man, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved, listen, of 10,000 temporal problems. For he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at the most concern him not for very long, which at the most cannot concern him for very long. Relieved of 10,000 problems simply on the back of answering this question, what do you think of when you think of your God? Maybe the better question to ask is, what does God think about himself? This morning, we're going to see that who God is in his glory is the foundation for everything in your life. And if you're keeping notes and taking score, that's the thing to write down. Who God is in his glory is the foundation for everything in your life. We begin in verse five with the descent of the glory of God to Moses on the mountain. And the thing that we need to notice first in the text in verse five is to sense his mysterious presence. To sense his mysterious presence. You're like, man, what are you talking about? Can't, we'll look at the text again. God comes down, doesn't he? He descends in the cloud and he, notice, stands with Moses there. Wait a minute, time out. God is standing with Moses? That must be some kind of wordplay. No, it's actually not. What did he look like when God came down? We don't know. There's no description. All we know is that this is a theophany. It's, it's a physical appearance of the Lord to Moses on the mountain there. And to add to the mysterious presence of the Lord, remember back to Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. Look back in the previous chapter, verse 20. God says to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. I mean, this is part of the mystery, isn't it? God comes and stands in front of Moses. The idea is he stands in front of him, but he must somehow be enshrouded within the clouds so that Moses can't see his face. Can you not sense the mystery here? Chapter 33, verse 20, no one can see me and live my face. And then several verses later, God comes and stands in front of Moses on the mountain. What must this moment have looked like? We aren't told. We can't know. But it adds to the mystery of the moment where Moses, God's mediator, is standing in the near presence of God himself. What we can know is that we can hear his clarion call in verse 6. We can hear his clarion call in verse 6. Twice in verse 6, the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims at the end of verse 5 the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed again, twice repeated. And the verse just means, or the verb just means to trumpet or to sound forth. This isn't the still, small voice that Elijah heard hundreds of years later at this exact location. It's not that voice. This is God proclaiming. God, like a trumpet, sounding forth. He's preaching, and guess what he's preaching about? He's preaching a sermon about himself. Himself. By the way, have you noticed? God's more interested in his attributes than he is about his appearance. That's the point of what this clarion call is about. It's regarding the proclamation of his name and his attributes. Moses wanted to see the glory of God, but the Lord proclaims to Moses, what you need, Moses, <clears throat> is not to see my glory. You need to hear my glory. Brothers and sisters, are you listening? There's a lot of people today 
who demand that they see the glory of God. You want to know how you see it? You hear it. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. So this is not about what we want to see from God. It's about what we need to hear from God. Faith is not faith if it's seen. Faith is faith when it's heard and hearing the word of Christ enables us to have saving faith in the Savior. What you need most in life is not to see the Lord. It's what you need most today is to hear from the word about who God is and about what he is like. And when God begins his sermon, man, what forms the introduction of verse six? When he begins preaching about himself, this is so fascinating, man. He begins his sermon with a call to behold his awesome beauty, to behold his awesome beauty, the Lord, the Lord, verse six. God begins his sermon with a name, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. The primary thing to see about God's name is that it's equivalent to salvation via his covenant. This is the same name that God showed to Moses back in Exodus chapter three in the burning bush. When the angel of the Lord, and we can talk about who that is, I think it's Christ. The angel of the Lord from the burning bush tells Moses, I am who I am. And in the giving of that great name, we see what's essential to understand about the God of the Bible. Two things. Do deep truths about God that you must know from the beginning of this message in his name. Number one, that God is eternal in his person. He is self-existent, number two. He is sovereign in power. He is self-sufficient. God, Yahweh, is self-existent and self-sufficient. Both stand true and both mark God in his very essence. The two aspects of the divine name mark out God as distinct from everybody else. Every other creature, every other so-called God in this context has to submit themselves to the self-existent, self-sufficient God. By the way, maybe you notice that the name is mentioned twice. Is that like some kind of like stutter step here by God? Like he's just kind of fumbling out of the gate? What's God doing here? Sounds a little strange to read. It's a little bit strange to say, the Lord, the Lord. You want to know what's happening here? It's as if God, when he's beginning to preach, begins his sermon with a kind of like poetic flourish. When God starts preaching about himself, it's almost like he starts singing about himself. He can't help it. He's so delighted by starting to talk about his great name that he unleashes this sermon with a song. It's almost like God, when he preaches, is combining the preached word with the sung word at the same time. There is meant to be in the proclamation of God's name, a deep delight to see it proclaimed. You should love to hear the word of God proclaimed. When Scott's up here week by week, you should long to to relish in what God brings through his servant, Scott. You should delight to hear the word of God proclaimed from this man that God has appointed to open God's word and to hear it preached to you should be a delight. Why? Because it's a delight to God when his name is proclaimed and his word is preached. This is who God is the awesome power of the Lord being fused with the awesome beauty of the Lord in the twice repeated name of the Lord. And we're not even into the content. That's who God is. 
awesome in power and awesome in beauty. Who do we have in heaven but you, God, and on earth? We desire no one but you. Same with him. What follows now in verses six at the end and down into verse seven is a description of what God is like. That's who God is, and this is now what God is like, his divine attributes. In, in fact, I don't have time to show you this, but these words in verses six and seven form a kind of confession of faith that redound through the rest of the Old Testament, kind of becoming like a, a working definition of God himself. I mean, listen, for centuries in the history of the church, the people of God from all of the world in every age have turned to this verse to describe more fully than maybe any other verse who God is and what he's like. So you're looking at an absolute treasure of a text. God, when preaching about himself, lists seven attributes here. Is the number significant? Do you think it's random? Each are rich in meaning and each are just a treasure of application. We're going to rifle through them in the time that we have left. First, God is merciful. You can see them all on the screen. There's no secrets here because it's right there in your Bible. God is merciful. I love what was prayed earlier, that God is a God of mercy. The Hebrew term is a term for compassion. His mercies, Lamentations 3.22, never come to an end. The word compassion means calm with, suffer, pasco, passion, to suffer with someone. Did you know about your God that he will always be sympathetic with your weakness? And if you don't know that about your God, you need to listen more carefully. This is like the, the father in the prodigal son story in Luke 15, who upon seeing his wayward son turning and returning home to him, runs out to meet him, embraces his wayward son, welcomes him back into the family. So great is the compassion God has for his wayward child. Maybe like you. It's like a father who rushes to pick up his hurt child when he sees his child running off over a ledge and just bails. Have you seen your child do that? How many of you are a dad and you've been like, oh yeah, no, I, can, I got that. I got you. Yeah, yeah. Three of you? Are you fathering your children? Yeah, okay, good, yeah. You should be seeing that happen with some kind of regularity and this is like the dad who rushes out to pick up his hurt child. So the father rushes out to meet you in trial. Listen to me. God cares about your suffering more than the sum total of the pain you feel in it. What you feel in your suffering is not matched by God's care and compassion. It is infinitely exceeded by his compassion. Friend, do you not see? Do you not see that mercy is the first thing that God wants you to know about himself? When preaching about himself, this is God's first point. And by the way, in case you think this is an accident by God, when you fast forward into the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, Paul just finishes 11 chapters of gospel glory and doctrine, right? Romans 1 through 11. And then when he pivots into the practical Christian life in Romans 12, he uses a single word to summarize all of the manifold glories of the gospel. Romans 12 verse 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the what? Mercies of God 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The gospel in a word, listen, is a mountain of mercy. You should behold the awesome beauty of God seen first in the fact that he wants you to know about himself, that he is a God of mercy to you. You also should see how he is gracious. You may not think this about God from Mount Sinai. You think about Mount Sinai and you think about God only being a God of law. You'd be wrong. The Lord repeatedly stresses to you from even atop this mountain that he is the God of grace. Look at Exodus 33, verse 12. Exodus 33, verse 12. At the end of the verse. I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So Moses says about God to him. Verse 13, another reference. Now, therefore, if I have found favor, grace in your sight, please now show me your ways. Look at verse 19. Moses says in verse 18, please show me your glory. And God says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Rather than giving us what we deserve, brothers and sisters, God is the God who gives us what we don't deserve. What is the thing that we get that we most deserve not to have? Salvation, man, absolutely. The free gift of God to us in Christ Jesus, in his death, on the cross, in his resurrection from the dead, authenticating the saving power of God in Christ. God is filled with grace toward his children. He is full of kindness towards you. He's disposed to bestow blessing upon you. God is merciful. He's with you in your suffering. And he is gracious while he's walking with you. He's giving you gifts that you can never earn and do not deserve to strengthen you for the walk. God is merciful to you. God is gracious to you. But see also that God is patient with you. Oh my goodness, this one just makes me, like I just can't quite understand my God here. Here's why. God is never volatile. God never loses his temper. God waits a long time to give sinners opportunities to turn to him. This word means to suffer long. It means, listen, to absorb injuries from others without returning the injury. To absorb injuries. Think about this. God absorbs more injuries than any other being in the universe. Not that he's injured. And think about all the injuries, all the sin that God has absorbed that have been fired at him just in Rockland, just in the past 24 hours. Think about your city and how much injury God's had to absorb against this city in just the last weekend. Expand it out. You really want to pull in San Francisco? Think about all of the injury that God has been aggrieved by in this state in just the past month. 
And you're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> you got a lot from them. Them. What about us? Does God not suffer long with us as well? Stop and think of all the ways that God has absorbed injury with sin that we've committed against him, both before we were a Christian and even after. Ponder how many injuries God has absorbed from our disregard of him and his word. Even now, wonder at the injuries that he's absorbed from us in our half-hearted worship of him in the worship service. When we sit in our seat and we pretend to worship God and we have all kinds of things happening in our life, we injure him as we worship him. Be in awe of the Son of God, that he at the cross absorbed every injury against God by God's people across every nation, across every age. He absorbed every injury. Praise the Lord for his mercy, that he suffers with us in our suffering, but praise the Lord for his astonishing patience that he suffers from us in our sinning against him. Look at the screen. What God can possibly, could you possibly imagine that could be like this? Walking with you in your suffering and absorbing injuries from you in your suffering. This is your God. Fourth attribute is that he's loving. The phrase is translated abounding in steadfast love. It's actually two words in the Hebrew. It just means great love. Great love. Love is the word chesed. It's covenant love where you sometimes get the word loving kindness in a different translation. It refers to God being committed to his people through covenant. If you think marital love here, you're not too far off the mark. There's no attribute of God in the Old Testament that's more evident than his steadfast love. For example, when David, King David, brought the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle, he bursts forth into song in 1 Chronicles 16. And the song reaches its crescendo at the end, David leading it with all the people of God. And he says this at the end, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Finish it. For his steadfast endures forever. Going back to this attribute of God. When the glory of God descended on the temple after Solomon finished praying and dedicating it, the entire country watching their king dedicate the temple where God's glory would dwell, say aloud together, for the Lord is good and his, what? Steadfast love endures forever. Did you know that when Israel marked, marched into battle, they had a battle cry? Now, I'm a big military buff. I love watching. I love learning about historical battles. I just was doing a little bit of reading on the Battle of Marathon. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. It's not running a race. It's a massive slaughter. But great battles of the past fascinate me. And one of the things you notice is when the men draw up to oppose themselves on the field, they oftentimes will issue forth a battle cry. So the Greeks had their high-pitched siren song. 
It was like a high-pitched scream, and the Greeks would march into battle. The Romans had their own, and, and then the Celtics had their berserk call, if you've ever heard of that. Their Germanicans had their wild, crazy-eyed cry. Are there any Germans in the room? You people are crazy. <laughs> I'm partly German, so partly French, so I'm used to attacking and surrendering at the same time. It's kind of crazy. I don't know what to do with myself. When Israel marched into battle, you want to know what their battle cry was? Second Chronicles 20, verse 21. All of the men amassed in line, charging into battle, and you want to know what they cry? For the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. And they charged to meet the enemy. Man, I love that. What a battle cry. I don't know what you think of when you think of God, but I'm afraid that this attribute has been so abused by doctrinally weak churches, even up in this area, but down in ours too, that associate God's love with being theologically weak. And I get that. I think that's somewhat true. But we must never downplay the might of God's strong love for his children. It is steadfast and it endures forever. You'll be singing about this in a million years. You will never tire of rejoicing in what God has committed to you in his covenant, keeping love. Fifth, I got to speed up. I'm too fired up. He's faithful. He's faithful. God's faithfulness is a subset of his immutability. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. It just means he's unchangeable, okay? The Hebrew term means truth or truthfulness too. God is following through on his truth, his promise to his people. He will never abandon his word. So important is it to you, to, to God, that you know that love and faithfulness are linked together at the end of verse six, that he explains it in verse seven, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Did you know that thousands? Look at the text there in verse seven. Thousands means thousands of generations. I had someone tell me recently that they're fourth generation removed from the revolution. I'm like, no, you're not. He's like, yeah, my family lived 100 years old, each of them. And I was running the math. I'm like, he's still lying. But whatever, four generations back. <laughs> All the way back to the revolution, four generations. Hey, brothers and sisters, 1,000 generations. No, no, that's actually wrong. Thousands of generations. I mean, you in your chair as a recipient of the covenant keeping love and faithfulness of God will be one generation of a thousand that will sing praises to God for who he is faithfully. And let me say something about this right now. Politics, climate, stock markets, relationships, health, governments, fashions, they all change. But God is telling you right now, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. Malachi 3 verse 6. How about that for a promise? You are not consumed because God is faithful to you. Stop putting your trust in politicians. What can they save you from? Are they saving us right now? Stop putting your trust in the market, your portfolio. Stop putting your trust in relationships around you or in health observations or whatever you want to talk about there. All that stuff goes away. You put your trust in him. He's going nowhere. And finally, well, second to finally, he's forgiving. When am I supposed to be done? 
You guys are like, not soon enough. I don't even know. Someone just give me a time on that. Oh, I've got the big clock right there. Great. 17 minutes? I'm doing fine. I'm slowing down. I also need a hanky. Don't give me yours, though. I just need a fresh one. Notice second or sixth of all that God is forgiving. Do you know what forgiving means? It means to lift and carry away. To lift the burden off of the hunched back, bowed under the weight of it, and carrying it away. J. Wilbur Chapman was the man who wrote, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Do you know that old song? It was written in, in the middle of World War I. Chapman tells a story of a mathematics professor who was converted under his ministry and became a member of his congregation. One morning during a men's study at the church, Chapman commented that God had taken our sins as far as the east is from the west. He turned to the mathematics professor and he asked him, Professor, how far is the east from the west? The man responded in tears, saying, Men, you cannot measure the distance. For if you put your stake here and keep the east ahead of you and the west behind you, you will go all the way around the world and come back to your stake and the east will still be ahead of you and the west will still be behind you. The distance is immeasurable and thank God that's where my sins have gone. The distance between you and your sins, condemning you, crushing you, burdening you, has been forever removed at a distance immeasurable because of the forgiveness of God in Christ. Do you understand when God says to you that he forgives your iniquity, trespass, and sin, that there's no category of sin that's left in your life to be forgiven by God? He's laboring to tell you that there's nothing that you can commit against God that he is not more than ready to forgive. Turn to Psalm 51. Oh man, I got Kleenex up here. That's awesome. Scott, do you usually do that? I don't know. I'm a total wimp. Okay, look at Psalm 51. It's a cold, actually. I'm not weepy. I'm just, I got a cold. I'm going to man up here. Psalm 51. You, you, need to, you need to just listen to the header and get uncomfortable with, with what's read. To the choir master. Have the choir sing this song. What song? The song of David. After Nathan the prophet went to him. After he had gone into Bathsheba. After he murdered Uriah, her husband. After he lied for a year in the palace and tried to hide. After Nathan held his finger up in his face and said, you are the man that should die for your sin. 
Yeah. And David writes a song and he wants the entire congregation to hear the choir sing it. Is he hiding here? No. He's not hiding anymore. Because of God's sheer mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. According to what? Look at your Bible. According to what? Say it out loud. According to your steadfast love. He can't get over it. According to your what? Abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Come, hold your finger there and come back to Exodus 34. God wants you to know what he's like. He is the God who forgives. Oh, look at those three words that David uses. Iniquity and transgression and sin. Are your sins worse than David's? Some of you are hiding in awful sin. In a room this big, no doubt, there's more than one who are just continuing to hope that nobody finds out about the life you're living when no one's looking. I want you to know what God's like. Your sin is awful. And somebody needs to call you out on it. And on the basis of God's word, I'm calling you out. I don't know you. I don't know what your sin is. But your sin is awful. And God's forgiveness is awesome. It is awesome. And its ability to overwhelm, overcome, and eliminate your sin. Go to him and ask forgiveness for all of it. Go to him today. Go to him now in your chair. And then go to a pastor afterwards and confess it. Confess all of it. Bring the darkness to light. Your hiding is misery. His forgiveness is mercy. Why would you not go to him? What's keeping you? Is your sin worth it? Is your hiding worth it? Look at who God is. Isn't he willing to deal with it? Isn't he willing to walk with you through the restoration as hard as it might be with your life? Do not walk away from this God. Run to him. You should run to him. Forgiveness full and free can be yours today. And the darkness can come into the light. This is who God is forgiving any and every sin when you will confess and repent of it. And finally, God is a God who is just. He is a just God. This is a hard but good attribute of God. God wants you to know about it because he spends some time talking about it. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is his justice. What does it mean though? Like, does it mean that God's going to hold me for my gram- accountable for my grandma's sin? Like, you know, grandma so-and-so, she was kind of crazy with that stuff back then. You know that stuff I'm talking about? Yeah, you do. That's that, that stuff? Is God going to hold me accountable for that? No. 
No, let me be clear. The scripture throughout the Bible teaches that God only holds responsible individuals for their own sin. Ezekiel 18 verse 4 says, the soul that sins shall surely die. It's required of a man to die, and after that, the judgment, Hebrews chapter 9 says. The Bible teaches that you and I will give an account before God for our own sin and ours alone. Yet, the sins of those who rebel against God often leave a bitter legacy for the generations that follow willingly in the train of that same rebellion. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9 explains this text well by saying that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Of those who hate me. So future generations will learn to hate God based on watching others never turn to God themselves. It's their decision, but they're seeing it lived out. You could say, this is discipleship. We're always discipling, aren't we? You can't say, I'm not discipling anybody. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you most definitely are. It's just a function of who you're discipling people to follow. And what will that discipleship produce? May God help us to respond appropriately, to point people away from hating him and point people towards loving him. Which, by the way, is exactly what Moses models for us in verse 8. Here's Mo Moses modeling the appropriate response in light of who God is, beholding his awesome beauty that he is merciful, gracious, patient, loving, faithful, forgiving, and just. How do we respond to all that? You just look at the text, verse 8. Look at the screen next. Verse 8, we bow down and worship God. Number two, we lift up our heart in prayer to him. Number three, we bring him all of our sin. Number four, we receive the freedom of his pardon. Some of us can do that right now and do that in a way that acknowledges who we are as sinners outside of Christ. We are not Christians here this morning. We have not placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you need to bow down and acknowledge who God is. If you're not a Christian here today, you need to know that that last attribute, that God is just, means that he cannot overlook your sin. In order to attain forgiveness of sins, you must turn to God's son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to forgive your sin, to pay the sin debt that you owe to God that you can never repay for yourself. If you will put your trust in Jesus to save you from your sin, if you will turn away from your sin in repentance and turn to follow Jesus with your life, then God promises you that he will forgive you of all of your sin and you will be given resurrection life by the regenerating power of the Spirit so that you might bow down and live your life of worship to him. You will live for the rest of your life and on into eternity, beholding the glory of God in heaven in all of his awesome beauty. That awaits the one who will bow down and repent of their sin and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has descended to you, non-Christian, in his word this morning to give you a glimpse of who he is and what he's like so that you might turn to him and follow him. 
If you're not a Christian, turn to this God and follow him today. And if you need help with what that looks like, man, like come talk to me. I don't know where I'm going to be at in a few minutes. Come talk to Scott. He's still awake. Come talk to one of our pastors who can help you with that. I need to be done. But let me just bring one more thing. Moses asked in verse 18 of chapter 33 what we all long to ask too. Please, Lord, show me your glory. We're wired as image bearers of God to long to see the glory of our God face to face. Moses asked to see God's glory and God showed him, notice, his goodness. God didn't answer Moses' prayer atop that mountain on Mount Sinai, but did God ever answer Moses' prayer? He did answer Moses' prayer. It was just on another mountain. Let your mind drift into the scriptures further, into the New Testament, and you remember when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, radiating his glory, stood on the mountain with two men, Elijah and Moses, Luke 9, 28 through 30. Oh my word, on that mountain, not this one, Jesus visibly displayed the glory of God in his fullness. In fact, Jesus visibly displayed God's glory here in this passage all through his life. Think about this, he had compassion on the crowds. He was full of grace and truth. He was so patient with his disciples. He was abounding in love and faithfulness and the forgiveness of sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the one who's nailed him to the cross, to you and to me. Jesus is the visible manifestation of everything that Moses longed to see of God. So let me leave you with this last question. What do you think of when you think of God? What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. This is who God is. And he is all you need. I don't care what you're going through. Well, he does. And he is all you need a compassionate, gracious, patient, loving, faithful, forgiving, just God. And do you know, dads, what your children need from you? Wives, do you know what your husbands need to see from you? Pastors and elders, do you know what the sheep in the flock need to see modeled? Your God. This is who he is. And this is what he's like. This must be who you are by God's grace and with his strength. And as God by his grace will conform you into the image of his dear son, this must be what you're like too. So that a world that is radically hostile and broken in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation might have one of you from Doxa Church see 
the glory of God, if only in part imperfectly, and say, I too will bow down and worship this God by lifting up my prayer to him, confessing all my sin to him, and following him with my life. Mission accomplished. Doxa. And North Creek. So I want to pray for you and ask for God's help in this. And then we're going to respond in song to close. Father, we acknowledge our small thoughts of you. And we pray that you would give us the grace by your spirit to be able to respond now with the truth that we've heard. God, the, the revelation from your word about who you are, awesome in power, awesome in beauty, and respond with our hearts and our minds bowed down and worshiping you, exalting, making much of you, God, and of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, please help us to worship you in the spirit and according to the truth that we've heard about you and make us, oh God, a church and a people who are more like you. Do this, please God, even now as we respond to you in song.